Cultural assimilation, severe ministry burnout, and being one of Tim Keller's successors. Today on The Pursuit, Pastor Abe Cho. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and my first guest is Abe Cho. Abe is the senior pastor of Redeemer Church Eastside in New York City. He is one of the guys who took over preaching duties for Tim Keller. No big deal. Well, Abe joined Redeemer staff in 2007, but his journey to where he is now was not a smooth ride or a foregone conclusion. It's actually quite a story. So let's all lean into my conversation with Abe Cho. Abe, one of the questions that I think everybody wants to know is, I know you grew up in Connecticut, but how are you a Minnesota Vikings fan? <laughs> yeah, so actually as a, a little kid, all through grade school, so, you know, I think three years old, all the way to fifth grade, sixth grade, uh, I actually lived outside the Twin Cities. So my dad, oh, okay. uh, yeah, my dad was teaching at the University of Minnesota. He was a professor of finance and risk management. And so he taught at the business school there. And we lived in a little town called New Brighton just north of the Twin Cities. So that was when all my sports allegiances got forged. Uh, 87 Twins won the World Series. I was like oh, yeah. 10 years old at the time. Kent Herbeck, come on. Yeah, Curry Puckett, those were the days. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so it became big Twins fans uh, and Vikings fans. And then the Timberwolves became an expansion team the year before we left, or a year after we left. So oh. uh, it was like a brand new thing for everybody in Minnesota. Okay, so you grew up in Minnesota, but now wait, so your dad was a professor of finance. Yeah, that's right. So how did you get here? Were you born here? Yeah, so my dad uh, immigrated to the U.S. in order to work on his PhD in economics. Wow. So I was born on the University of Illinois campus. Yeah, so I would say our immigration story, I think it's maybe slightly different than kind of uh, the vast majority of folks that I've met. Uh, He came for those purposes. Um, And then after he finished at the University of Illinois, his first job was at the University of Minnesota. So, I mean, how was his English? Uh, His English was actually quite good. Um, In our home, he worked really hard to speak only English to us. So my mom spoke to us exclusively in Korean. Uh, My dad spoke to us exclusively in English because he knew that he really had to work at that, both for his teaching and also for like writing journal articles and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so he worked pretty hard at English and uh, he was pretty good. Okay. All right. So you're in Minnesota. Your dad is, is a professor of finance. Are you going to church at that point? Uh, yeah, for the most part. So our family kind of had an interesting uh, kind of relationship with uh, with the faith, with Christian faith. Uh-huh. So my mom, when they first got married, was not a Christian. She was born into a Buddhist family. Um, okay. And so in Korea, they had a hard time finding a Christian minister to do their wedding. And so I think they actually got married by a justice of the peace because he was a Christian, came from a Christian family from the north. My mom came from a Buddhist family from the south. They ultimately immigrated to America, and it was through that immigrant experience that my mom became a Christian. I think it was the experience of just the generosity of the immigrant Korean church. Uh, When they came, she didn't speak any of the language, didn't know what to expect, but there was a local church there and other uh, Korean Christians that were very, very um, hospitable in helping them kind of get situated and helping my mom to find a job and find a place to live and that sort of thing. And so my mom became a Christian. Um, Later on, my father came down, with, was diagnosed with a full-on like kidney failure. So his, his kidney was failing and he needed a kidney transplant. And so during the time when we were in Minnesota, the Mayo Clinic being kind of a leading transplant center, uh, he was actually kind of a day-to-day for a very long time. We were waiting for a, a kidney donor. Wow. And basically it was just, we're not quite sure if dad's going to make it. Yeah. Uh, turned out that a donor... And how old were you at this point? Oh, I would have been... Uh, I get my timelines kind of fuzzy, but it would have been like mid to late elementary school. Oh, wow. So maybe third or fourth grade, something like that. Yeah. I mean, by the grace of God, uh, uh, a kidney match, a donor match came through, and this transplant was successful. 
but right after the transplant, he ended up contracting viral meningitis, which is a uh, kind of viral disease that impacts the brain. Mm. Um, and so even after the transplant, it was very, very touch and go. So was, I remember going to the ICU uh, in Minnesota to visit that and that sort of a thing. Yeah. Uh, he ended up recovering from that. Uh, but the, the net effect of that was he came out okay, but his faith didn't come out with him. Uh, so he would tell us, you know, Jesus is a liar because he said that when we pray in faith that he would answer our prayers, but I prayed through all of that and I went through all of this suffering and I nearly died. And so I just don't believe in Jesus anymore. Wow. And so there was a stretch there where he refused to go to church with us. Uh-huh. Um, and so I still have memories at this point, you know, my mom, I don't know that she has her driver's license yet. We're living in Minnesota and um, my, my dad's not going to church. And so I remember walking to the nearest church, which was just a few blocks away. Okay. Uh, but we were this Korean family uh, walking in the suburbs of Minnesota, and nobody walks out there. Uh, to the, uh, it, was, it was like a Swedish Refor- Dutch Reformed, it was a Dutch Reformed church, I think it was. Yeah. And so we were clearly the only uh, non-Dutch folks, uh, I think, in that church. Right. But we were really embraced and welcomed. I still remember go to, going to VBSs there and Sunday school and that sort of a thing. And so for a while, it was just my mom taking the kids. Uh, and then after some time, and I don't, uh, I just remember my dad suddenly deciding to come back to church with us. And I just remember, okay, don't ask any questions. This is a good thing. Let's just kind of roll with it. Yeah. Don't, don't mess it up. Right. Exactly. It's good. Don't, don't screw this up. Uh, my dad started coming back to church. So by the time we had moved out of Minnesota, uh, my dad was kind of back uh, in church and I think was really growing in his face. So he was wrestling with God with some pretty serious things for that stretch that I'm at this point still not privy to. One of the questions I'll yeah. look forward to asking him uh, on the other side of glory, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So then what, what prompted the move to Connecticut? Uh, so uh, work roles. So basically his time at University of Minnesota, it became clear that a tenure track was not likely, I think given mm-hmm. just a setup there. And so he decided to apply to different places. We actually spent two years uh, in Virginia Beach, Virginia. This is my middle school years, junior high school years, where he taught at Old Dominion University. Okay. And then from there, we ended up at, he ended up teaching at the business school at Quinnipiac University, which is in Hamden, Connecticut. Um, okay. So we moved there when I was uh, going into high school, going into ninth grade. So what was it like growing up? Because many immigrant, second-generation Korean Americans don't grow up with parents who are in academia. Mm. My, my growing up experience was like my parents didn't know the American educational system. Like I, we as brought my me and my brothers, we had to teach them. Like, no, this is how it works. This is what, you know, how you should hold us accountable. Right. And then my parents were like, oh, okay. But your father's like in the system. Right. How was that? Yeah. I mean, we, uh, yeah, he definitely understood the system and we had a kind of a clear path that he wanted us to take uh, from an academic perspective. Um, one of the things that I do remember about some of his struggles in the academic world was uh, he was kind of very self-conscious about the fact that he was the only like Korean immigrant, oftentimes in the business schools that he taught. And so there was a sense in which he was very self-conscious of that. And that was partly why he worked so hard at his English. But even things like he was very uh, careful about like the foods we ate because, you know, he didn't want us to be smelling like Korean. He didn't want to be smelling like Korean food every time he went to the office. And so there was a lot of, I guess you could call it kind of cultural assimilation that was going on there because he felt the need to be able to fit in and thrive in this academic environment. Yeah. So that was kind of an interesting struggle to watch in him and, you know, raises questions about, well, what do we do with the, our, our Korean American identity uh, in this predominantly kind of a white context? And so I think that probably maybe was the most unique element to that because he was right in the middle of that very educated kind of world mm-hmm. wrestling with what does it mean to be a uh, Korean and Korean American in that context. Yeah. So what did that do to you and your understanding of your ethnicity, seeing your father almost be shy or, you know, trying to mask your ethnicity? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, I think on the one hand, my hunch is that for many Im- children of immigrants and Korean American immigrants in particular, kind of processing what place uh, does my ethnic identity have 
And so we'll go through, you know, the various stages of being embarrassed by it, uh, even right. being resentful of the fact that, you know, mm -hmm. I've got to translate all these documents in, into English and that sort of thing. Why can't my parents be able to learn how to read that sort of a thing uh, to anger? You know, uh -huh. that why why am I being forced to feel ashamed of this thing, which is such a deep part of who I am? Right. So I think all those emotions were things that I was processing. I think I still remember my father. And this might be uh, kind of characteristic of that generation, too. But he would oftentimes oftentimes point to the Jews as the model way to kind of navigate the cultural world in America where, you know, you work hard, you succeed, um, you don't you know, make a big deal about who you are, who you are ethnically, and you right. preserve your ethnic identity in different enclaves. And so for him, I think the Korean church was a part of that. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's a sense in which you're preserving your ethnic identity, but in the broader world or in the dominant culture, uh, it very much was kind of a posture of assimilation. Yeah. Um, so I think it was all of those themes that I was processing, but I think in particular, probably what it did for me is that it probably did foster a little bit more anger, maybe, uh, to say, like, here's somebody who, in my mind, was brilliant, who had to overcome all kinds of obstacles, who had achieved all this, these academic credentials and that sort of a thing. And yet, nevertheless, there was a sense in which he felt like he was constantly on the outside. Uh, he felt like he had to downplay a particular uh, part of who he was. Yeah. So I think there was probably a little bit more anger and resentment as a result of that, watching him wrestle through those things. So for you growing up, like in, in grade school, high school, were you socially, were you one of the few Asians in your school? Like, were you hanging out with Asian people or Caucasian people or, or what was it? Yeah. So uh, most of the places we lived, I oftentimes was one of, of the only or if not only very few Asians uh, in the school. Um, in Minnesota, all the most of the other Asian Americans that I ran into actually tended to be adopted. So I don't know. I think okay. it was some sort of a something about the adoption laws in Minnesota meant there were actually a lot of Korean adoptees that lived in America okay. in, in Minnesota. Um, and so there, I was oftentimes the only uh, Korean kid from a Korean American family. Uh, in all the other places, too, that was definitely the case. So in Connecticut, it was a lit group in a town that was a lot of Catholics, uh, a lot of Jews. And not a ton of anything else, really. Um, yeah. And so I always had two sets of friends, which I think is fairly common. I had my school friends who, who were largely white Caucasian. Uh -huh. uh, and then I had my church friends who were all exclusively Korean. Because you're going to a Korean church at this point. Right, right. We're going to a Korean church uh, one town over, uh, driving about 20, yeah. 25 minutes to get to church. And so you're just living in these two worlds and you're kind of navigating these two realities uh, on the one side, you know, at school, there was kind of this, you know, my experience of it was that it felt very secular and then also very white. Whereas on this other side, it was deeply Christian, deeply religious and spiritual, uh, but then also very fundamentally Korean American in its essence. Um, and so that was kind of the world that I lived in. And I kind of joke, like the first time I ever met a, a white person who was like a born again Christian, like I was like utterly shocked. I, I was like, wow. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, it was such a, this novelty. I'm like, wow, wait, so you believe Jesus is the Savior? You believe he rose again from the dead? Right. Same God? Right. The same God. Right. Wow. It was, <laughs> it was such an anomaly to me. <laughs> when did you feel like, you know, you mentioned secular and sort of like this Christian existence. When did, do you feel like those two became sort of one singular identity? Yeah, I was wrestling a lot with that in high school. Uh, so I think my own personal faith uh, really was rekindled when I was in high school. And during that time, I'm wrestling with questions of basically acceptance. You know, I look at the mm -hmm. kids at school and I realize, oh, I, I can't be myself. I have to put on uh, a particular face or a particular mask. I have to meet particular expectations in order to experience acceptance from my peers and friends at school. Right. Uh, felt something similar with my parents. I mean, they were great parents and they loved us. But at the same time, I had the sense of, well, what happens if I don't achieve academically in the way that they so clearly want and need me to? Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was a sense of um, meeting expectations on that side as well. And so in high school, I felt I realized for the first time that there's only one place and there's only one love that knows me for who I am, uh, flaws and all, and yet accepts me completely for who I am in Jesus Christ. And so wow. my faith uh, really was taking off then. But I was really struggling because I was trying to bring my faith into my high school life. But, you know, that's a hard thing to do. 
Yeah. And so, you know, there'd be times where I'm like, I'm trying to wear like my missions t-shirts to school as a way to kind of <laughs> out myself, you know, as a Christian in school. Uh, and so, you know, just really wrestling through that. What does that mean? I would have conversations with school friends here and there, but for the most part, they were kind of separate. It was probably more in college uh, when I went to the University of Connecticut okay. that at some level those worlds converge, but even there, not exactly. So by the time I got to college, even right after my freshman year, almost all of my friends were exclusively Korean American or Asian American at least. Mm-hmm. And uh, the vast majority of those Asian American friends were also you know, Christian. They were part of our Korean Christian fellowship right. on campus. They went to the Korean church that I went to. And so mm-hmm. in one sense, my I guess my academic world and then my spiritual and I don't know, ethnic world, if you want to think of it that way. Uh-huh. In that sense, those worlds came together. Uh, but at the same time, my interactions with people outside of my own ethnic group, that kind of dwindled away uh, during my time in college. So yeah. I think that was something of a convergence. Uh, but at the same time, it wasn't kind of a full integration of my entire life, kind of under my faith, but also integrating you know, who I am as a Korean American. Uh-huh. That probably didn't happen, I would say, until actually post-seminary. Right. Uh, in kind of a funny way. So when after you graduated from college, where'd you go? Yep. So I uh, finished at University of Connecticut, actually studied molecular biology. So I thought I was going the medical route. Uh, I always joke with people. I was actually pre-med because I love science. It wasn't just Asian undecided. So I actually wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> wanted to do pre-med. Um, but right after college, I went straight into uh, seminary. So I went right to Gordon-Conwell. So I graduated in the uh, spring and then that fall. Uh, I enrolled at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, which is where we met. That's right. Right. That's right. Did, and so did you know in college that you wanted to become a pastor and go into ministry? Or was that another form of Asian undecided? Yeah. <laughs> the other kind of Asian undecided? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I was really wrestling with that. So I would say my sophomore year in college, um, what really started wrestling with the question of ministry, I realized. Uh, that part of the reason I w- went out uh, on the campus uh, was more often for ministry purposes than it was really for studying purposes. I mean, my grades were fine, but I realized what got me out of bed day over day was I happened to have to do well in these classes, but really I'm here to you know help other people grow in their faith. I'm really here to share my faith mm. with those who don't believe. And so there was a sense in which my whole life had been driven by this impulse towards ministry. And my, you know, studies in science started to feel a little bit like a sidetrack. Hmm. Uh, so when the, the, the weight of my life shifted over to ministry, that's what started to kind of raise some questions. So my sophomore year was when I was asking some of those questions. I was praying a lot. I was reading a lot of scripture. I was talking to the pastors at my church and other leaders that I knew and just really trying to process the sense of calling in the context of community. Uh, and by the end of my sophomore year, I started to feel pretty strongly sense of calling into ministry. Uh, it, was a passage, it was a passage in Isaiah 43 uh, that God really used to help me to see, like, you know, God has called me to, uh, to ministry. And so uh-huh. I still remember having to go home that summer to tell my father that I was going to be a pastor and not a doctor. What did he say? Uh, so a lot of prayer uh, went into that conversation before it happened. And I was joking, you know, being the oldest son in an Asian family, I was the 401k. And if I went from, <laughs> right. if I went from, you know, doctor to ministry, that 401k just tanked overnight for them. And so oh, uh, a lot of prayer went into that. And, you know, I went home and, uh, you know, I, I told my dad on the phone and we sat down at the kitchen table and he said, so tell me why you think God is calling you to ministry. So I just kind of, you know, told him the story. And I was kind of bracing myself for him to say, no, absolutely not. And I was already prepared in my own mind uh-huh. to say, like, look, even if I don't get their blessing, this seems like something that I need to do. Right. But to my surprise, uh, my dad, you know, kind of pondered what I said. And then he looked at me and he said, you know what? If I call myself a Christian and God is calling my oldest son to be a pastor, how could I say no to that? Wow. Um, so it was an utter shock, utter surprise. Never thought in a million years that would be his response. And yet there it was. And so that was kind of a final confirmation um, that this was where God was calling me. Sure. The next year, actually, for me, was a really hard year. So the next year was when my father passed away. So we had that conversation in the spring. Mm. That next fall, uh, my father, um, my mom called me when I was at 
uh, college my junior year and said, hey, your dad's been having stomach aches. We think it might be ulcers. Just pray for him. And I said, okay. Uh, a month later, she had called again and basically said, it is like late stage liver cancer. Wow. And it, he might only have a couple more weeks to live. Uh, so I took the rest of that semester off, came home, and my father passed away just before Thanksgiving. Um, this was in 19, wow. this is 1998. Um, and that next year was really hard. Uh, yeah. Basically, the way that I was kind of seeing it was, okay, God, so I just gave my entire life to pastoral ministry, and this is how you thank me? This right. is like this is the response for that? Uh, and so there was a lot of anger. Um, I'm realizing even now, you know, 20 years later, I did not know how to process that grief. Uh, and so yeah. Yeah, I feel like even today, I'm working through things that, you know, had I had, I don't know, a little bit more of a emotional self-awareness. I mean, you're 21, I guess, maybe how, how much yeah. self-awareness you're going to have. But uh, there was just a lot there that, that uh, I just didn't really allow myself to look at or deal with or work through. So even today, you know, I, uh, I see counselors fairly regularly and find that a lot of the stuff I, I uh, wrestle with today, you know, have their roots in that experience and not knowing what to do or how to process that. Wow. But, you know, ultimately God used me in a lot of different ways. The next year, uh, there was a friend who had just become a Christian whose father passed away the next year. Mm. And so almost immediately I saw, you know, the truth of how God used our wounds and our weaknesses uh, to be the source of healing for others. And I saw that almost, you know, immediately. And so in many senses, while that's not oftentimes not enough to say, well, you know, it was worth it then, you know, it it certainly wasn't enough for that. But nevertheless, you start to see, okay, Lord, there's something else going on here. I don't like it. I don't get it. I don't know that I agree with you. Uh, right. But, but you can use it. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So during that time, were you still sort of like junior year, senior year, were you still setting your eyes on seminary? Yeah. Um, so having wrestled through some of that and still having a sense that that was where God was uh, was. Um, calling me to, I was still tracking towards seminary. I finished out the biology degree just because I didn't know if is it going to be medical missions, is it going to be something else. Uh-huh. Uh, the specificity of that calling to full-time vocational ministry wasn't clear yet, so I wanted to keep the doors open. Okay. And so then you end up at Gordon-Conwell. Yep. And did you meet Jordan at Gordon-Conwell? I did, yep. So uh, she was a second-year student when I came in as a first-year student. Um, and so we were really great friends over our time there. So I, you know, I was there for the next four years, finishing my MDiv. She finished uh-huh. her degree and then stayed on in a staff capacity with Gordon Conwell. And so we were uh, part of a group of really good friends there and got to know each other. I had a really healthy friendship for three, four years. And then at some point I said, why am I not asking this girl out? And so, <laughs> uh, so we dated for about six months and then uh, got engaged for six months. And then we were married uh, right after I graduated with my MDiv. Yeah. So at this time, you're, you, you had mentioned you're surrounding yourselves with Asians, Koreans. Mm-hmm. And I mean, by this time, you're, you're meeting Caucasians that are Christian as right. well, studying alongside you, teaching you. Right. Um, what is, what, where is your thought for like future ministry? Like, where did you think you were going to, what type of church were you going to end up at? Yeah. So in seminary, um, actually for most of seminary, I really thought I was tracking towards overseas mission. Oh, okay. Um, so in my MDiv, all my elective classes, I tried to take around missiology, uh, history of missions and that sort of thing. And so for most of my MDiv, that's where I thought I was tracking. Somewhere in the middle of seminary, second or third year, um, I actually came to the realization that the main reason why I wanted to be a missionary was because I wanted to prove to God that I was worth saving. So, you know, I said, you know, there are some people who are Christians and then there are some people who are pastors, but really, you know, the the elite, the top of the top, (laughs) the really uh, holy ones, they're the ones who are missionaries that go to unreached people groups. And, you know, I was working through a lot and, you know, the gospel was coming alive to me in new ways uh, for a second time in my life. And it was really just a powerful kind of a, a, an experience of gospel renewal in my second or third year in, in seminary where suddenly I realized, no, you, you want, you need to become a missionary because you need to prove to yourself and you need to prove to God that you were somebody that was worth dying for. Wow. Uh, and I realized that my impulse to need to be a missionary was actually sin. I mean, it was works righteousness. It was so antithetical to the gospel. 
And so for the first time in seminary, I kind of let go of that and said, Lord, if that's not where you're calling me to, uh, I, I kind of release that. And so um, I started to hold that much more open-handedly. Uh, around the same time was when Jordan and I started to get serious. And, you know, in some of our conversations, uh, once we once we were kind of tracking toward dating and that sort of a thing, you know, she had raised the question. She's like, look, you feel called to missions, don't you? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And she said, I'm pretty sure God's not calling me overseas. Uh-huh. And so we had this, uh, we had these things to work through just even in our dating relationship. And so, you know, just providentially, God was working out both the sense of calling uh, and this uh, relationship with Jordan. And I got to a point where I was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to hold this loosely because I don't need it anymore. Yeah. I realized the reason I needed it was for uh, reasons that were outside of the gospel. And so by the time we had these conversations, I was able to say to Jordan, I said, I think I'm tracking towards missions, but I don't know. And I want to keep it open-ended. But I, what I do sense is that this relationship is something God is calling us to. So we'll figure out the sense of calling together Right. right. Um, afterwards. My third year in seminary and fourth year, I think I was unsure what God was going to do. Um, by the time I finished my MDiv, you know, at this point, I'd heard of Tim Keller um, during that time where the gospel was taking on kind of a new power in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd listened to some Tim Keller sermon tapes and that sort of a thing. And so by the time I had finished seminary, uh, you know, the notion of the PCA, which is the denomination that Tim is in, um, started to see, feel very attractive to me. So theologically, uh-huh. I was lining up with a lot of things. Um, and then also the emphasis on cities was something that became interesting and exciting to me. And so by the time I finished uh, my MDiv, I started a sense of maybe God is calling me to pastoral ministry in cities. And so right after I finished MDiv, I started working at a church called City Life Presbyterian Church in Boston. Um, Uh And that was kind of a place where I was exploring, okay, is this city thing, is this part of what God is calling us to? Uh, And we're kind of feeling out that new, somewhat surprising sense of calling. Wow, that's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. First of all, what a gift to just be able to recognize your sort of need for to become a missionary before you actually became a missionary. Mm. Like you're a single person, you don't have family over there, you're not living over there, you're not in an active missionary ministry. Um, Like what a gift to be able to learn all those things before you actually went forward and did all those things because it becomes so much harder to untangle all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. It was the kindness of God, yeah. Your experience at, at City Life, City Life is a comparable church to like what Redeemer is to New York City in a certain degree City Life is to Boston. Is that a fair analogy? Yeah, uh, City Life was a church that kind of grew out of the Redeemer network of churches. Uh-huh. And so it, it's kind of a center city church, which is a very similar population and demographic. So I think that's a fair thing to say. Yeah, and wh- what was your role there? Uh, I came on as the director of, actually, I came on first as the assistant director of university ministry. So basically doing college ministry. Uh, and I was working under uh, the leadership of a friend of mine, Tolliver Wills, who's a PCA pastor now down in Atlanta. Okay. Um, so I was basically working with college students for the first, for three years there. Okay. And so then after your time there, how did you end up in New York City? Like, how does that connect? Yeah. So that was... Uh, I think an interesting series of events. I think, you know, in my time at City Life, this is the first time that I've ever done ministry outside of a Korean American context. Yeah. So this is the first time where I was kind of coming to grips with the fact that I was going to be a pastor of not just Korean Americans who are younger than you, which was, was an easy thing to think about and well within my comfort zone. Right. But City Life was the first place where I was really being stressed to say, are you going to be able to pastor someone who's older than you and who is white? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of that kind of working through some of that ethnic identity stuff, uh, working through what does it mean to be in a cross-cultural situation, a lot of that was already b- beginning at uh, City Life, and it was really formative uh, in those years. As far as going to New York and coming to Redeemer, um, we never thought in a million years uh we would ever go to New York. You know, we, we would say things like we would love to visit New York from time to time, but we would never want to live there. You must be crazy to live yeah, there. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> why, would, why would anybody want to do that? And on top of that, we had had our first child, uh, Lydia. She was a year old. We had just started a family. And so we we're like, not only would we never go to New York City to live, <laughs> we certainly wouldn't raise a family in New York City. Yeah. And so it was the last thing on our mind. Um, 
That's going to be the soundbite for the the podcast, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Redeemer, (laughs) pastor, you must be crazy to raise a family there. Um, But uh, what happened was I was just kind of doing ministry in Boston. We're settling settling in. We love the church. We love the ministry. We love the city. Yeah. Uh, And then I got a phone call from a friend of mine. So uh, John Lynn, who's still a pastor here, he's now the downtown lead pastor. Okay. He actually was the pastor uh, of the church that I went to when I was in college at the University of Connecticut. He's Chinese American, but he was leading the English ministry of a Korean American church uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. He, by this time, had been uh, on staff as a pastor at Redeemer, uh, probably now for about three or four years, maybe more than that, actually, maybe five years. And so he had called me and said, hey, we're looking for, you know, a pastor, an assistant pastor. I thought you might be a good fit. Would you be interested? At Redeemer at this point is is sort of one one church, right? One location. Yeah. Like this is a central role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. So this would have been back in like 2005, 2006. It's so still just one large church meeting in, I think, three different locations, but still very okay. much a, a single church and that sort of a thing. Yeah. And so he had called and it was the first time that seed was planted in our minds. And after thinking about it and praying through it, we actually initially, oh no, we actually came down for interviews and that sort of thing. So made some connections and, um, uh-huh. After all of that, we kind of came to the conclusion that this was not the right thing. Um, <laughs> so we actually said no the first time around. And I still, remember, really? yeah, I still remember hanging up the phone after turning it down, looking at my wife and I'm like, we just said no to Redeemer. Does that happen? <laughs> all right. And so we, well, we were just getting settled in, in Boston. All those hurdles that I mentioned about New York City, it just seemed like a bridge way too far for us. And so we're like, it didn't feel like the right time. And so right, we kind of right. you know, let that go and um, just kind of continued on with life. But God was really using that to prepare us to even consider this as a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so about a year later, I uh, got another call and basically was saying, look, another uh, pastoral role has opened up. This doesn't happen all the time. Uh, would you consider it this time around? And at this point, you know, my wife and I were like, look, lightning doesn't strike twice. Uh, clearly, there's probably there's more here for us to consider as far as God guiding us than maybe we initially wanted to uh, admit. And so the second time around, we started to get pretty serious about it. Now we were pregnant with uh, our second child. Okay. Um, and so we made a visit down. We specifically asked to spend like an afternoon with a family that was raising kids in the city. And I think just in that intervening year, God had been just preparing us to be open to this as a possibility. Uh, so that second time around, that was when we um, accepted the role, and we moved uh, in the summer of 2007. My daughter was a year and a half, and my wife was eight months pregnant uh, with baby number two. Wow. So the very first thing we did was look for an apartment in New York City, find an OB. Like Those were number one and number two. <laughs> <laughs> and then left, about a month later, yeah, we had uh, our second child. So. Those first years at Redeemer, it was like new job, new church, new city, new baby. Wow. All kind of stacked up uh, on top of each other. So it was a big blur. Uh, probably was way more than we ought to have taken on. Um, <laughs> but God was still good. I don't know. He sustained us. And yeah, somehow we made it through all that. So the allure of coming to, or maybe there wasn't an allure, but but the decision to come to Redeemer, I think for outsiders, many would say, Oh, I just want to be around Tim Keller. Mm. Or some would say, um, you know, I want to be around Redeemer. Was it for you? Was it any of those? Or was it just like, I want to work with John? You know, what 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 were some of the the factors that brought you to Redeemer? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, I mean, certainly Tim work be able to work closely with Tim was a part of that. Um, you know, his sermons during my seminary years and beyond really were formative and transformative in so many ways. Uh, so I think that was an attraction. I think working at like a Redeemer Network Church in Boston, uh, City Life, there was so much that we admired and we kind of borrowed and learned from Redeemer that in a sense it felt like, wow, to be able to go to Redeemer, uh, there was an allure to that. I think it was very attractive. Uh-huh. Uh, I think because uh, I knew John and because there was already a sense of there are folks that we know here in New York City that made it a lot more uh, feasible in our minds. But the other piece that we were really wrestling with is, you know, all along we were, I was still kind of wrestling with God to say, but what about this whole missions thing? Like, what about this whole, right. like, was, was I completely off on that? Like, was that, you know, what, what's, what am I supposed to do with all that? Yeah. When we came to New York, um, 
and just seeing the, the, the diversity here in the city, you know, the whole world is in New York City in so many different ways. But then also the sense in which, uh, you know, Leslie Newbegin talks about how the newest mission field that's emerging in our day is the post-Christian West. Mm. Uh, and New York City in so many ways was the epitome of that post-Christian West. And I realized that it does pose a very new missiological challenge uh, that we need people who would be able to engage with the post-Christian West with the eyes and the approach and the attitude of a missionary. Yeah. And so I really saw in both of those fronts, uh, in so many ways, I was really surprised to say, oh, I guess this is what God was preparing us for, that all those studies in missiology right, right. make sense because I'm not going to be able to understand a post-Christian secular urban environment without using those missiological tools. Right. Uh, and even like the mindset of coming with young kids uh, to New York City, like you really had to see yourself as a missionary and say, we just got to make this work because God has called us here and we got to find a way. And so I think those elements and those strands came together as we made these decisions. And as we landed, we saw the wisdom of God and so many of those things. Uh, so I think it was a combination of all that that really made us say, boy, this is, this might be what God has been um, kind of gently nudging us towards all along. You had mentioned um, earlier about needing to sort of prove to yourself that you could minister to someone who is older and someone who is white. Mm. Now, for someone who may not have grown up as a, a minority, may not fully understand that that understanding of of what you're saying there like yeah. may not fully understand that sentence in terms of like the power dynamics that are at play here mm-hmm. um but now coming to redeemer um how how had you sort of grown in that understanding because there are probably some some minorities that are listening to this and are wondering the same thing right maybe they're working in a in a Korean church or an Asian church and and are wondering you know, do I have quote unquote what it takes to minister to someone who's older or who is white? What would you say about your journey? Yeah, uh, that I would say that's one of the one of the main areas God had to grow me in, in the first uh, few years that I was at Redeemer. So I think in a lot of ways, both explicit and implicit. You know, growing up a minority in America, there are many ways in which uh, you end up feeling inferior because of your ethnic background. Mm. Uh, so there's a sense in which, uh, you know, whiteness is normalized. There's a sense in which uh, whiteness is the gold standard. Uh, if you go back to my father's kind of vision for kind of cultural assimilation, right. it was us learning to adjust to a white reality. And uh, the skill to which we're able to do that would determine our successfulness. And so there's a sense in which there's an aura about you know, the white culture and the white dominant culture uh, in a way that would make you feel insecure, uh, ashamed, uncertain, self-doubting uh, mm-hmm. because of the fact that you were an ethnic minority. And so all of that was very real. So there was a very real intimidation factor that went into it. Like one of the ways that I try to very succinctly describe this to people is, you know, before um, my ministry here at Redeemer, the only time I ever sat across from a middle-aged white man was when I had done something very, very wrong. <laughs> there was no other situation in my entire life growing up where that would happen apart from that kind of context. I did something wrong and I was brought into the principal's office or whatever the case might be. Right. But now I was put in a situation where I was like, okay, I still remember one of the first uh, lunches that I had. You know, I, did, I had inherited a bunch of small group leaders. I came in as a community group pastor. And one of the very first tasks I had was, you know, I, had, I inherited something like 40 community groups and I had to just go down the row and set up appointments and just make a personal connection and meet with these leaders and start to get to know them. Yeah. And one of the very first um, appointments that I had was with uh, a man who, you know, middle-aged white man who was uh, a very high up, fairly high up in one of the major banks here in New York City. Sure. Right. And I had to sit down over lunch with him all the way downtown and somehow be his pastor. And it was just so jarring for me. I had no idea. (laughs) I was nervous. I didn't know what this person thought of me. I didn't know what their expectations of me were. I didn't know how I was supposed to behave. Like there's so many things in there where there, I was just, I felt like I was going in blind and just saying, okay, I'm just going to 
have lunch with this person and see what happens. Uh, but that was a really big adjustment. And I think in the, in the midst of that, part of what happened was, um, you know, wrestling through my own ethnic identity theologically, I began to realize that, uh, you know, my ethnic background was not a liability per se, mm-hmm. uh, but that my ethnic background was actually a very important asset that God had given me to steward. Mm. Uh, which is not to say that simply because I was a minority that somehow I was superior to people who were of the white and predominant culture, but it merely was to say that there was something unique about my experiences, my perspective. Sure. Uh, the very things that I thought of as liabilities were actually kingdom assets. If I could just allow myself to embrace who God had made me to be. And it took years of really wrestling through that and, and took a lot of wrestling to say, is there really something positive? That I can, is it really something that I have because of my ethnic background that my white brothers and sisters actually need from me? Right. Uh, and wrestling with those kinds of questions uh, is ultimately what let me to say, you know what? This is who I am. And um, it is an asset to ministry. And are you going to be able to steward it well uh, for the good of others? Right. Um, and that's took a long time to really work through. And, and, you know, the reality is I'm probably still working through it now you know, in inheriting this role where I'm now running one of the Redeemer churches. There's a lot uh, of that stuff that continues to rattle, rattle around in the back of my head. Uh-huh. Am I doing the right things? What are people expecting of me? Are my instincts right as far as leadership goes? All those things are still back there as far as, you know, moments of self-doubt or uncertainty that, that kind of plays along these same kind of ethnic lines. So you had mentioned this lunch with this, you know, this executive at this bank. I imagine in his mind, he probably is thinking, oh, cool, I get to have lunch with Abe. (laughs) (laughs) Like not thinking through all of the cultural, you know, minefields uh, that are are laid out. But I do imagine that in your time in Redeemer, that there were people, Caucasian or otherwise, that were not used to being ministered to by an Asian pastor. There must have been incidents of cultural insensitivity or even prejudice or even racism during your time. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's right. And I think, um, you know, most of it, it, and this is something that I still wrestle with, but most of it ends up being the kinds of things that it's hard to see or articulate, you know? So, Mm. you know, very rarely New York being such a diverse place, right. Um, you know, people know for the most part, hard to kind of navigate these cross-cultural situations and environments. Uh, but a lot of it kind of boiled down to, uh, you know, issues of systemic racism, right? Mm. So the degree to which people don't realize uh, how much cultural cost you're paying to navigate the culture of a church whose culture was essentially white. Um, right. So as a staff person and as a leader and even as a pastor there, not realizing that there's actually a lot of cultural negotiation going on in me internally just to be able to, for example, be at meetings and say what I need to say in a meeting. Mm-hmm. The kind of the ways in which I had to go against all of my cultural instincts and cultural training, right? If you're the youngest person in the room, you're not the person who's going to start off talking. Right. Uh, you know, those kinds of cultural instincts. Because that's the Korean mindset. Right, exactly. In the Korean church and Asian American mindset, there's always a kind of deferring to authority and deferring to elders and that sort of thing. But even in, in those meetings, to be able to say, actually, I got to get over that. And I have to be able to participate in this meeting as an equal. Otherwise, I'm not going to be contributing what it is that God has asked me to contribute. Yeah. So little things like that, um, where there was a lot of cultural adjustment that I had to do in order to just kind of navigate this world. Um, and most folks not realizing, oh, right, it is a system that is built on a particular culture with a particular set of assumptions, uh, kind of a professional world, which is oftentimes framed uh, in, in the white professional reality. Uh, and so there was a lot of that uh, going on throughout the time. There were a lot of times where I wondered, and no one ever would say this to me, but I did wonder, like, oh, are uh, you know the white folks in our congregation, are they prepared to follow a non- white leader. Right. And again, nobody would say that they weren't like everybody would be like, yeah, of course. And, and I believe them, right. They didn't, they weren't lying to me. Right. But there's just a reality of perceptions, um, a sense in which if there are decisions that maybe, uh, decisions that I make that out of my Korean American experience makes sense. that doesn't make sense to somebody who didn't have those experiences. 
will they be able to start to feel that marginalization and what does that mean and those kinds of questions and so i think that's uh one of the main ways that i wrestle with but you know curry uh, um redeemer even by the time i arrived was already something like 40 percent asian american and right. uh and of that asian american you know more than half of those asian americans were korean american and so there was a sense in which uh you know, I had stepped into, you know, Tim used to joke about how I'd stepped into the largest Korean church east of the Mississippi at Redeemer. (laughs) (laughs) And so there was a lot that was familiar. (laughs) Tim was the pastor of the largest Korean American congregation. Right. (laughs) And so there was a lot familiar there, but you know, a lot of realities, like things like our, the community groups that I inherited, we would have all Asian groups and all non-Asian groups. Right. Um, not because anybody was actively selecting out people who were different. In fact, everybody was really working hard to maintain that kind of cross-cultural element in these groups. But just the small ways in which an Asian group, it, people felt more comfortable, more connected. It was easier. It was familiar. And if you weren't Asian, you felt like you were on the outside. Uh, it was right. harder to break into those cultural norms. And then the same thing on the other side, when a group started to become predominantly white or a different ethnicity, and people who are outside of that ethnicity, the cultural cues and that kind of thing just wasn't as familiar or comfortable. And so there are a lot of groups that were almost exclusively Asian, a lot of groups that are almost exclusively uh, white. And that was one place where I started to realize, boy, it's easy to maybe be in the same space Mm -hmm. as people of different ethnic backgrounds, but to actually share life together requires a real commitment to discomfort, a real commitment yeah. to, you know, hard conversations, a real commitment to all those things that um, I think we oftentimes underestimate. Yeah, And totally. so we had to wrestle with, and we still are, we still wrestle with, what does that look like? How do we be a genuine cross-cultural community, even across just this one particular uh, difference, you know, between white and Asian? Your transition to the lead pastor of the East Side preceded Tim's Tim Keller's retirement uh, by a few years. Was that was that seen down the road, the, the the path of succession? And then also the question of was your assumption of the lead pastor of the East Side, was that a no-brainer for you? Was that like clearly the next step? Mm. Yeah, so it definitely was uh, part of the plan for succession. So we definitely wanted to create an overlap where Tim would be able to, you know, formally but also informally kind of pass the mantle on to the next generation of leaders. So Redeemer went from the one large church, we're now three um, three churches, and we're all three churches looking to plant more churches. Yeah. Um, but the three lead pastors, uh, Tim definitely wanted to intentionally have an overlap there to kind of pass the baton. As far as my stepping into the lead pastor role, it was anything but a clear decision for me. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? So some of the story of that is, uh, you know, the three or four years leading up to that decision, I actually had uh, experienced a pretty um, severe ministry burnout Mm. and had been diagnosed with depression during that time. And so during those years, there, there were there was long stretches where, you know, I really questioned my call to ministry. There were long stretches there where I said to myself, you know, if I had developed any other marketable skills, <laughs> I would be out of ministry today. Um, and so there was wow. in the midst of that burnout. You know, I felt trapped because I only had one, you know, professional set of professional training. The change seemed too big. You know, I had by that time I had four kids, and so there was a lot riding on, right? Um, you know, my 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 work situation and that sort of a thing, and so. For about four or five years, it was a really, really hard stretch. Um, so I was put on medications, which I'm still on today for depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, started seeing a counselor very regularly. Uh-huh. And a lot of that burnout basically boiled down to, um, it was it was that same thing that we talked about earlier about um, needing to be a missionary. Right. Uh, it was essentially a, a version of that where I needed to be the best pastor people had ever had. Uh, I needed to be the pastor who, you know, Redeemer is a big church. So a lot of people, uh, you know, kind of feel like we don't really know our pastors. It feels impersonal. It feels corporate. Right. And I had to be the one pastor that was really personal, that was accessible, that was all those things. Right. And so for the first five years here, I basically was just killing myself trying to exceed people's expectations on those fronts. 
Yeah. And it just wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. And it was, yeah, it was, it was just wasn't the right thing. I had bottomed out, hit this depression, this burnout, ready to leave ministry. But over time, uh, I was able to take a sabbatical. So Redeemer was able to give me some time off just to sort through some of these things. Uh-huh. And for the next two years or so, there was kind of a slow return to health where I was able to set new boundaries. I was able to prioritize my own personal health, both spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Uh-huh. And so I was able to find a much better balance uh, between life and ministry. And so when the question about this East Side lead pastor role came up, I was still just coming out of that depression. So not even clearly like out of the woods yet. And then they offer you this position. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, definitely not. Still feeling, uh, you know, very fragile, like feeling like I come to a new, healthier equilibrium, but also feeling like at any moment I could get tipped off here and I could go spiraling back down. You know, felt like a very fragile equilibrium that I'd achieved. And they're like, do you want to take over for Tim Keller? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And so Tim had reached out right around that time. And uh, I don't know if you know a little bit about the East Side's history, but the original lead pastor for East Side was a great pastor, a great leader named Leo Schuster, who had planted several Mm -hmm. churches uh, in his past. He had recently stepped down uh, for a variety of reasons. There were health issues going on, and it was a a tough time for their family. And so the East Side uh, was the only congregation that for that stretch didn't have a lead pastor for about a year or so. Okay. And so it was during that time where they realized we need to find somebody to take to step into this role. Um, John had already taken over downtown, was doing well down there. David Bisgrove had taken over West Side and was doing well there. But the East Side had gone through a couple of extra transitions there. And so, uh, you know, Tim had reached out and said, hey, you know, I, th- I think you know about this search for East Eastside lead pastor. I really think you should consider it. And I told him like straight on my Tim, I think that would be the worst decision in the world for me. <laughs> I think that would be the worst decision in the world for East Side. They need stability. They need somebody who's going to be there for a good stretch of time. And given where I am now, I just think that's a terrible idea. What did he say? I don't actually remember, but somehow he talked me into into this, at least don't say no just yet. I think it's basically <laughs> where he was leading me. Uh, and so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to preempt. I won't say no. We'll see where it goes. But boy, if I had to put numbers on it, it's like 99% no. Wow. Um, but he was like, okay, but let's just track with the process. So I went through the entire process. Uh-huh. And that was the case leading right up to my decision point. So I still remember it was a Wednesday that I had a deadline on Wednesday where it's like, Abe, you need to tell us you got to decide by this date. And so we had picked the day just to give oh. the timeline. And it was a Wednesday. And that Sunday, that Monday morning, I was like, yep, this ain't happening. It's going to be a no. Uh-huh. And I, uh, this whole time, my wife and I have been praying, Lord, we don't want to do this. We don't think this is the right thing. But if this is what you're asking us to do, we need you to make it clear. And if you make it clear, right. we will trust you and we know you need to make it clear and we'll do it because we'll, we'll trust you on that. And so that's, that had been our prayer throughout the entire process. And right up until that Monday morning, it was like, nope, this is nothing clear. I don't think this is the right thing. Uh-huh. And then that afternoon, I went into a, a counseling session with my counselor. And I think if you were to talk to him, he wouldn't, he wouldn't know exactly what happened there either. But there was something about that counseling session where all the themes that I had been exploring for months and months and months leading up to that, in that one session, somehow just pulled together. And suddenly I felt like I understood my depression and I understood some of the roots of it. And therefore I understood how to identify it and prevent it. Wow. Uh, All in one single session. It just kind of pulled together in a way that felt miraculous. Right, right. And so I walked out of that session and immediately first thing I did was I called my wife and I said, hey, here's what just happened. And her response was, well, we've been asking God to make it clear, haven't we? And that seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Wow. And I said, yeah, 11th hour for all that to come together and for me to, for the first time to feel like I understand my depression enough that I I feel like I could manage it. Maybe it's not going to go away. I'm not going to solve it or cure it, but at least know well enough to be able to manage it. And so that was that Monday afternoon. And so by the time Wednesday came around, I think everybody was utterly shocked 
that I said, yeah, <laughs> they're all, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> but it was one of those times where, and it, it's, it goes back to the kindness of God to me in ways that I certainly don't deserve. But there are just those times where he makes things so clear that even now, you know, I'm, I'm almost four years into the role. And it has, it's been one of the hardest uh, leadership roles that I've had to step into. Sure. Far beyond my sense of what I can accomplish. You know, this has taken me way beyond mm-hmm. my own abilities or whatever. And as hard as it's been, I think one of the things that has helped us to continue on and just to keep showing up to be faithful has been, no, God made it really clear. This is what he's asking you to do yeah. uh, right now. And so we've come back to that so many times, and that's what's enabled us to kind of keep on just being faithful and trusting that God has asked me to be here and will use me uh, in this particular role. Hey, that's an amazing story, man. Yeah, this is partly why I, you know, joke with my congregation and I say, you know what, I'm a Presbyterian through and through, but there are a lot of times where I feel like a Presbycostal. Uh, (laughs) And that's one of my Presbycostal moments um, where God just, I don't know, he just really, he knows that I need that clarity. And in his grace, he granted in those moments and uh, yeah. grateful for it. One of the things that I think I could never, you know, work at Redeemer at a church like that is because I just, the pressure to read books <laughs> and scholarly articles and all the, these things would just be overwhelming. Mm. Is that real? Is that a real thing? Like you, you feel pressure? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think um, for me personally, that's actually the part of my job that I love the most. Okay. So to be able to carve out time to be uh, reading things, pushing myself. Um, one of the things that Tim still does for us is he, you know, will send over recommended reading lists for us uh, as a, the lead pastor of these churches, and so that's an element that I really enjoy. I think I've always it's always been very life giving to me to be exposed to new ideas and particularly new ideas that explain other ideas and make sense of the world that I see uh, and and live in. And so I really love that element of it. I think uh, where there's pressure, where it feels challenging is trying to find the right balance between that and then all the other responsibilities of pastoral leadership, you know, um, whether, you know, obviously the preaching, but then there's also uh, leading the staff, uh, leading elders in session, uh, setting a particular culture on the staff so that the church has a particular culture, uh, laying out vision for X number of years. So there's so many elements of it that um, have that sense of urgency um, where to find the time to be able to sit and study and try to continue to grow in this area can be challenging. Yeah. Uh, so there's, that's the pressure there. But I think really the overall pressure that kind of uh, covers, that's kind of a canopy over everything that I do really is the question of, you know, are you always comparing yourself or are you always going to be compared to uh, Tim Keller? I mean, that's part of the, the right. challenge of the role that I decided to agree to. Um, and I think that's been the biggest challenge. Um, how do you manage that? How do you deal with that? I think for the longest time I was in denial of how much of that was a reality for me. Um, uh-huh. and so I just didn't admit to myself that when I'm working on a sermon, I wasn't admitting to myself that the question I was asking in the back of my mind is how would Tim Keller say this? Right. Uh, as opposed to how are you going to preach this? And I think that kind of dynamic was going on in every area of my role, of my role, of my leadership role in this. How would Tim Keller do this? How would Tim Keller do this? You know, what are people thinking? How are people comparing me? And I think that was uh, very, very pervasive. And it still is today. You know, that's that's a reality uh, that I think is going to be there for a while. But I think it wasn't until maybe a year or so ago that, I don't know, I, I feel like I turned a little bit of a corner where it's like, you know what? We're, we've been through this transition enough, and Tim, obviously, in many respects, is a once-in-a-generation preacher and leader and, uh, you know, sure. figure. But And so there's, you know, no denying that. But at the same time, you know, the people who are at the church who are re-energized for this new chapter of Redeemer, they know who you are, and they're signing up for this. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, they're with you on this. And I think it was, a, it was a really liberating moment where I started to realize, you need to stop asking yourself, what, how Tim Keller would preach this sermon. Uh-huh. And you would just, you need to ask yourself, how, how, does God, how does God need to speak to his people through this text and, and allow you to be the preacher? And so it would, took a lot of prayer. You know, when you take over for a uh, founding pastor like Tim, 
you're basically committing yourself to be pastoring a church that's going in, in the midst of huge change and therefore oftentimes decline in budget and decline in attendance and that sort of a thing. Sure. And week over week, it's hard not to take that personally. You know, it, you just realize <laughs> this is just the seat. This is just what it's going to take. This is the leadership challenge that you've uh, been asked to step into. Um, and so in the midst of all that, it's been tough week over week to kind of uh, inhabit that and wrestle with this stuff about am I being compared to Tim Keller? But right. through all that, boy, let me tell you, nothing really uh, helps you to see just how much your sense of worth and identity is in Jesus and not in ministry success and not in, you know, the applause of the crowds or whatever it is. Uh, this role has really helped me to really see all the ways that I need to really draw my sense of worth and identity and value yeah. uh, from the gospel so that I'm free to lead well uh, in what is a pretty tough kind of leadership environment. I feel like the whole country, um, you know, in some ways the world, you know, has been sort of watching Redeemer go through this transition because there's this generation of, of leaders, of founding pastors of these megachurches all across America have transitioned or will transition soon. And so for this succession that was planned for many years and has now been implemented, uh, what would you say are like the three best things or like the the best thing that you guys did in this whole succession plan that made it uh, work out so well? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, when we were looking at Tim's transition, one of the things that we had to constantly remind ourselves was to say, how can we approach this transition not as a loss to be managed? Uh, but as an opportunity to be um, kind of capitalized on. Mm. And so that mindset shift to say, let's get out of preservation, conserving a golden age past mentality. Yeah. And let's refix our mind and our imagination on what are the new possibilities that present itself uh, in the midst of this transition. And we had to do that, you know, not in kind of a, a naive sort of a way, we had to really look at the very real realities of what this transition was going to entail. So we had to be honest about that. But yeah. at the same time, that mentality shift, I think, was important. So I think, you know, the plan to go to multiple churches and become a family of churches in the midst of the founding pastor stepping down, I think it, it's an audacious thing to attempt. But I think it really does grow out of that. Look, the kingdom is not dependent upon one preacher. Right. And the kingdom of God in New York City has, God has been at work in this city for so long and will continue to be for so long. Uh, this is just a different chapter in that kingdom story uh, to the degree that Redeemer is a part of it. And so I think that mentality shift was really, really positive. It was not easy, uh, even just amongst the staff to have that mentality. Yeah. Um, but I think that was a critical piece to it. I think um, this next chapter, one of the things that I think is great, maybe a second thing, is uh, it's really forcing us to be more rooted in our neighborhoods. Um, so up until now, you know, Redeemer has been kind of a Manhattan-wide, center city-wide kind of a church. So, you know, more of a regional type of a mega church. But as we break up into smaller churches and as we focus our uh, kind of ministry energies on particular neighborhoods, it's really causing us to be rooted more. Um, you know, on the west side with a building, that building re represents real brick and mortar presence, which means there's going to be interface with, you know, the um, the local elected officials. There's going to be interface with other local institutions in the neighborhood. And I think that's happening for all of our congregations to some extent. And so we're less kind of a church that hovers above the streets of New York. And now we're being really planted and placed down into the streets of particular neighborhoods. Uh, and so I think that's a real plus. Um, and I think the third thing is that it really, uh, we're in a season where I think the average congregant and redeemer is starting to really hear the message, hey, look, to reach a city, we're not going to reach a city through one great preacher. To reach a city, yeah. it's going to take a movement of people who are committed to loving their neighbor, who are prepared to speak of the hope uh, that is within them. Uh, but you are the key uh, to reaching the city in the next generation. And so I think people really see, feel that and sense as we move to neighborhood churches and we, as we plant more churches and uh, as the focus becomes less about one really gifted preacher and apologist, 
to we are doing on the ground in people's lives ministries and that's what's going to really move us forward in the future now all those things are great but it's also a hard thing to make that transition you know for so long you know we had been working in one particular way so it's got its challenges but i see those as some of the major opportunities uh, that we're looking at yeah i mean it's it's fascinating to watch to see Redeemer really turn into a model that in some ways couldn't exist while Tim was there right. because of just the diversity of leaders and the diversity of neighborhoods and messaging and, and everything like that. So it really is fascinating to watch uh, and root from the sidelines. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. And we definitely appreciate all the folks who are rooting for us. And uh, I feel the prayers of so many people um, as we make this transition. So it's been uh it's been a humbling challenge, um, but also, I don't know, crazy that somehow I get to be a part of all this, uh, which is, feels surreal to me. Surreal indeed. You know, what struck me about Abe's story was about how God began preparing him for this position so many, many years ago. Decisions and experiences and desires that you wouldn't necessarily be able to connect the dots to where he is now. But yet, when you look back, you can see how God was journeying with him all along the way. If you'd like to follow Abe, you can find him on Twitter, at Abraham Cho. And if you're in New York City and would like to hear him preach, Redeemer has services at 10.30 and 5 p.m. Well, thanks so much for joining The Pursuit. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at The Pursuit Cast. And finally, subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. It's a simple thing, but it does mean a lot. As we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the way. Yeah, because if it were me, I'd be like, I can do this, and then I'd crash and burn. And then <laughs> That's what I did five years ago. So God allowed me to crash and burn right when the stakes were a lot lower. Crash and burn there. And then hopefully you'll be humble enough to step into something like this.